Hey everybody, it's good to be with you. Um, I'm John, if you don't know me, from The Porch. Um, do you guys know that show Monk? Anybody else watch this show back in the day? You know, the it's like Sherlock Holmes, except the guy has OCD, and so he, he has a tough time solving crimes or whatever. Well, anyway, at the beginning of Monk, there's a, um, there's a part, like in the intro, there's a song, you know, um, and it's just sort of like B-roll shots of him. And in one of them, he's walking out of his apartment, and he has three umbrellas, like with the little hook, you know, umbrellas on the wall. But one of them is facing the wrong way. And I think he shuts the door, and he walks out, and then he opens the door back up, and he sticks his arm in, and he flips it so that all the umbrellas are facing the same way. Anyway, Melissa makes fun of me because that's my favorite part of TV history, is watching him. It just feels so good to watch him fix these umbrellas. Because... I'm like Monk, except for all the smart stuff, you know? I'm just a little bit nuts. And my wife, Melissa, she makes fun of me a lot because she said um, she didn't know any of this until we got married, you know, that I was a little bit crazy. Anyway, all this to say, at the porch, uh, we are teaching the book of Luke. And the way we do it is we just go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And a couple of weeks ago, we were doing a sermon, this sermon we're about to do now, and this passage, you know, and the recording didn't work. And so... Uh, that's why you guys get this one, because now we get another, because I'm crazy, and in my mind, there's a list on our website of sermons from the book of Luke, and one of them is missing, and this is my chance to reach in and flip the umbrella so that they all match, and I can finally go back to sleep at night. So Craig, don't mess up the recording, or i got to find a third church that's going to let me, just kidding, uh, <laughs> give this a shot. So um, this is, uh, so if you have, you know, if you want to follow along, we'll be here um, in Luke chapter 13, but uh, let me just open us up in prayer um, before we dive into this kind of long passage here. Lord, we um, are so grateful that we can be together um, as your people and spend time in your word and, and study it together. And um, we, we ask, Lord, that your spirit would speak to the depths of our heart and that you would take the, the truth of the gospel and um, the beauty of your son and just help us to understand and see that a little bit more. Um, as we um, spend time in this passage today. So we, we thank you that we have this privilege and ask that you would be here now. Amen. So we have two very sort of popular ideas about uh, salvation. The first one, I'll talk about salvation, how people outside of the church, what they think we believe about salvation, right? So if you... Um, Watch, okay, here's another thing about TV shows, right? I swear I do more than just watch TV, but here's another illustration from TV shows, right? If you watch any TV show um, and they talk about church or, you know, whatever it is, any movie, the basic idea that people think is that Christians believe if you're good, you go to heaven, and if you're bad, you go to hell. And actually, a lot of people who aren't uh, followers of Jesus, they kind of believe that too, right? Um, there's a TV show, oh, I'm blanking on the name, I didn't write it down, with Kristen Bell, where uh, The Good Place. And I think this is, I haven't seen a second of this, I've just sort of read about it, but I think that's the whole premise of the show, is she's bad, and she accidentally, like on a clerical error or something, goes to heaven, and the whole show takes place in heaven. And, I mean, this is the idea, right, that um, salvation is based off of our behavior. But what we do, what people do, is they draw the line so that, to make sure I'm in, so no matter how bad I actually am, I'm, the line goes to wherever, however good I am, right? And then everybody else who's worse than me is on the outside, and everybody who's better than me or me, we get to go, right? Um, Pew Research, this group, this Pew Research poll group, um, they, did a, they did a poll a while ago um, where uh, only 
2% of uh, people in America, when asked the question, say, yes, I'm bad and I'm going to hell. Right? So 98% of people think some, if there's a heaven, whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm going there. Now, that's sort of outside the church. Inside the church, things sometimes, though, look very similar. Basically, a lot of times what church people have done is we've taken that same idea, if I'm good, I go to heaven, if I'm bad, I go to hell, but then we've just redrawn the lines and defined being good as being a church person. So churches in America are filled with self-righteous, sort of entitled people who think that being part of a church is sort of the key card that gets them into the gates of heaven. So it's the attitude, though, is exactly the same as what happens outside of the church. The tie-in with this passage is this attitude was very uh, popular in Jesus's day. It wasn't so different with the Israelites in the first century world that Jesus was preaching to and teaching. Actually, it was the same kind of in the Old Testament too, right? You can think of um, like the whole, um, you know, the book of Hosea or uh, Judges, or you know, like where these people thought we're the good guys because we're the Israelites and they're all the bad guys. And so for a lot of them, that's why the exile was such a huge shock where God was saying, you guys think you're the good guys, but you're going on a timeout, right? You're not acting like, the, you know, you're, you're, you're being terrible. And so coming out of the exile, a group, a couple of religious groups popped up. One of them was a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, you know, if you've read the Gospels at all, you know who the Pharisees are. But the basic idea of the Pharisees, it didn't start out with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The Pharisees started out like this. The people of Israel didn't follow the covenant before the exile, and we want to be, like, extra careful and make sure that never happens again. So not only are we going to follow the law, we're going to create a buffer zone around the law so that you never even get close to breaking it. That was the idea of the Pharisees. By the time uh, of Jesus, though, things had really uh, gotten bad with this, this religious group. And they were very um, self-righteous, a lot of them. And um, everything had become, if I'm good, uh, I go to heaven, and if I'm bad, you know, or people that are bad go to hell. And so I'm, the Pharisees were very good at drawing those lines around themselves. And so even other covenant Israelites who weren't exactly like the Pharisees, the Pharisees would say that you guys are on the out. And it's to this uh, sort of attitude in this group that we see Jesus now. Um, he starts this teaching. So we'll start here in verse, we're just going to walk through this together. He starts here in verse 22. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. So Luke, and uh, you know, you guys aren't reading the book of Luke with us, but Luke, uh, as you go through the book of Luke, um, doesn't quite concern himself with um, chronological order or geography quite the same as like Matthew and Mark do. John and Luke tend to like mix things up a little bit more. Um, and what he's doing here is this whole section of the middle of the book of Luke is Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem uh, to face the cross. And Luke wants us to understand that the importance of this. So tons of these sections in the book of Luke, in this section, start like this. Jesus was, you know, on his way, heading towards Jerusalem. Jesus was on his way, going towards Jerusalem to face the cross. He really wants to under, he wants the reader to understand that when we get to the part where Jesus is crucified, that's not Jesus losing. That was the whole point. Because he's already said, he's had sections where Jesus explains about the cross to the disciples who don't get it. He's had sections where he talks about humility in the upside-down kingdom. And now, it's over and over again, Jesus is heading towards the cross. Matthew says it this way in Matthew 20. He says, even the Son of Man came not to serve, sorry, not to be served, 
but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Right? This is the reason the Son of Man came. The reason Jesus came was to give his life as a ransom for many. So the question then is how many? Look at this, verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And then he says to them, and we'll get to that in the next verse. So this question here, Lord, how many people are going to get saved? is prompted by two things. If you have a Bible open and you look just behind these verses, um, Jesus had just given a couple of parables where he talked about the kingdom of God is going to grow. It's going to start like a mustard seed, and it's going to grow into this, uh, you know, this plant, you know, a big plant. And then the second parable he talks about is like um, the leaven and the bread. It's going to start small and grow. The point is it starts small and it grows. And people that were sitting there were probably thinking, okay, how big? Right, what's going on here? The second thing is, this was a question that was very common in Jewish thought. And Jewish rabbis were debating this. Because after the exile, there was a lot of the prophets wrote things about a remnant. Right, that God would save a remnant. And the question was, who's part of the remnant? How big is the remnant going to be? And so they were constantly debating you know, what this group, this remnant, looked like. And so um, another way to put this is, you know, you know um, the mustard seed... It grows. Somebody's listening. The mustard seed grows into this plant. Cool. Um, but, like, I don't have to do anything, right? Because I'm already in. That's, what, that's what's at the heart of this question. I'm already in because I'm an Israelite. I'm part of this, I'm part of this uh, group, this, this new kingdom. And so look at Jesus' response. Um, he doesn't... Uh, I love when Jesus does this. He doesn't answer the actual question, right? How many people are going to get saved, you know? Four billion? Two, what, Jesus doesn't give a number. He, just, he, he goes right to the assumption underneath the question. Um, it's like there's always a lot of questions are like this, right? Where the, the, the surface level is not really what's being asked, right? Melissa has a cat. My wife, Melissa, has a cat. I don't have a cat. Melissa has a cat. Me and this cat, we don't particularly get along. I'm not a cat. I'm not cat people. One day I asked Melissa, how long do cats live? She knew what I meant. It was not how long do cats live? How long do I have to put up with this cat? That was the question, right? She didn't, she didn't answer the question in general, you know. Okay, so that's what's going on here, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Look at verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So first, Jesus says to whoever asks this question, don't worry about how many, worry about you, right? Did you see that? How many people are going to get saved? Here's what you need to do. That's the answer. One of the things that religious people are very good at is feeling superior by comparing themselves to other people, right? So like I said earlier, I'm going to draw the line always in a way where I get in and people I don't particularly like are on the outs. Um, I'm I'm going to come up with a way for this where it's easy for me. But Jesus says not so fast because the way in is a narrow door. It's similar to what he says in Matthew, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. Uh, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Right? The image in both of those is the same. It's not automatic. Right? You don't just automatically get in. It's, it's, there's the narrow gate, the narrow door. It's like um, if you live in San Francisco and have a garage, I'm guessing it's small. Right? Most of us, if, like we have a garage in our apartment building. My wife and I, we have a, um, it's like a small garage. And um, I have a SUV. And getting the SUV out of the garage is like literally, I think I've got about this much side on each, on each side. Actually, another place I used to do this, when I worked at this church here at DPC, we had a church van. And when I first uh, was the youth pastor here, the van, there's a garage on Dorland and literally doesn't go in without folding the mirrors in, right? 
And one time recently, and with my SUV, I was backing out, and there was a whole bunch of construction guys behind me walking up and down the street. And I was trying not to hit the guys, so I was doing this, not super paying attention to the mirrors. Anyway, so that was when I found out that I don't have one of those cars that has a mirror where it bends the wrong way so you don't break it off, you know? I just took the mirror clean off. And by the way, apparently these mirrors now have like computers in them and stuff. This was like a billion dollars to change one mirror. I'm still bitter about this. It's just a mirror. What do I need? Lane assist and all this garbage, you know? So, right, this is what Jesus says though, right? This, this way of salvation is like pulling your car out of John's garage. It's not automatic. You've got to pay attention or you're going to bust the mirror off. And uh, look at what he says. Is um, Sorry, let me scroll up here. Uh, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and won't be able. Right? Remember the assumptions here that Jesus is talking to Israelites who are making very big assumptions about how salvation works. That I'm automatically in because I'm part of the people of God, because I'm part of this covenant. And so he tells them to strive to enter. Now, this could be really easily misconstrued, where you're thinking, okay, so we have to earn our salvation, right? Strive to enter. That means I got to do something to get saved. Um, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. We got, this is one of those places we have to take the more clear parts of the Bible where this stuff is flushed out in the uh, writings of Paul and different things, and let that speak to what's going on here. I think he's not saying salvation is by works, but that people need to be earnest in the way that they follow Jesus. Right? It's not just automatic. And so, um, like I said, we'll have the rest of the New Testament flush that out. So let's keep going. See what he says. Um, verse 25. Um, when, when once the master of a house is risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I, don't, I do not even know where you come from. So Jesus here is pictured as sort of the judge, the master. Um, at the porch, why we're reading the book of Luke, right? We just sort of launched our church. And what I told our folks is, this is I want to read the book of Luke because in our culture and, uh, and in growing up in church probably, a lot of us have this picture of Jesus. And that picture of Jesus is not always the biblical picture of Jesus. We've got all this extra stuff that we've sort of thrown on to who Jesus is. And what we want to do with the book of Luke is we want to look at who Jesus tells us he really is and say, okay, this is our Lord, this is our master, this is... This is the reason we're planting a church, is to be part of this kingdom, right? One of those kind of weird pictures of Jesus is he's this nice, hippie teacher who just wants to affirm all of your life choices and doesn't really care how you live, and, um, you know, um, he would never judge me. The thing is, the picture in the Bible is not PC as this is, is the exact opposite of that. Jesus is the one who draws the line. Jesus is the one who decides who's on the inside of the door and who's on the outside of the door. What's the criteria? In this passage, what is it that Jesus tells us is the criteria? He says to these people, you're not on the inside because I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. It's the same idea in Matthew. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's very similar to what we're reading here. Following Jesus isn't about rules or law. Not that the law and all that stuff isn't important. It's it's not about being good enough. It's about knowing him. It's about faith in him. In both of these parables, that's the end, is do you know Jesus? And he continues that line of thought in verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and And you taught in our streets, and he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. 
So it's the same thing here as in Matthew, right? Is they show up with credentials. Look at what we did. In Matthew's, uh, in, uh, when Jesus does the same sort of a thing uh, in Matthew, the, the wording's a little bit different. And um, it was a different time when he said similar parable kind of things. Um, but there it's like, oh man, look at all this church stuff that we did for you. We prophesied in your name. And here it's like, you know, you were visiting our town. But the idea is church people, we do this, don't we? We, we show up to the Lord, the throne room of God, with our credentials, right? Look how much I gave over my lifetime to the church, Lord. Uh, look how much I was helping uh, at church. You know, I signed up to be a greeter, or, you know, I was reading during church every week, you know, I was there. Um, or sometimes we can even take something like, you know, the mission of living, right? Like, I was reaching out to my neighbors, and I was loving my neighbors, and I was serving my neighbors. And we show up with these things at the throne room and say, this is why you need to let me in. If you show up at the throne of God with a list of things that you did for him and expect that that's what's going to get you in, you're going to have an absolutely horrible time. That's what Jesus says, right? If you show up, or like, if you show up with a list of things you know about Jesus, look how much theology I know, look how much that, you know, you're, it's not going to go very well. And that Jesus specifically says here that you workers of evil, that's very strong language. Because remember who he's talking to, covenant Jewish people in the first century who were part of the religion. They showed up, they did their sacrifices, right? They went to synagogue, they memorized things, they showed up, they, they took pilgrimages to Jerusalem. The assumption with every one of these people was I'm good and other people are bad. And they drew a line in a way that benefited them. And so Jesus shows up and he redraws the line. And he says, look, the way in is to be a follower of the Messiah. And if that's not you, even if you're doing all this stuff, you're right now, you're on the outside if you're rejecting me. That's a terrifying idea. Look at verse 28. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. That's some terrifying imagery, right? That there will be, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In our culture, it's not very PC to talk about hell, right? To talk about eternal judgment and that God is in some way going to take care of and handle sin, you know? Um, but Jesus talks about hell in the Gospels pretty much more than the rest of the New Testament, right? Most of the stuff that we know about hell and the theology of hell, we get from the mouth of Jesus specifically. Now, there are different sort of views on hell, right, within the church. Some of them are a little wacky. Some of them are a little more in. Um, but no matter sort of what view, if you want to learn more about this, Francis Chan wrote a great book um, called uh, Erasing Hell, I think it's called, um, just about the theology of hell, if you want to read more about Because there was a couple of pastors recently that wrote books that were basically universalism. There is no hell and everybody's going to heaven. And so Chan said, we need to take this theology seriously and it should break our hearts that, you know, we sit in a coffee shop surrounded by people who are heading to eternal destruction. The picture, so what's the specific view of hell here is, you know, ask Chris, right? All right, you can do that later. It's not that important. It's just, we'll say here, it's going to suck, right? This is, not, this is not pleasant imagery. And one of the things here, we think the weeping and gnashing of teeth for us, when we read this, we think, man, the worst part of that is probably if there's some sort of physical pain or not or something like that. But Jesus specifically says here, something else is going on with these people. The part that they're going to be the most upset about is um, this stuff where he says, you guys are going to look in at the party, and it's going to be Abraham and the prophets and all these folks, and you're going to be sitting there on the outside. That You spent your entire life thinking that you were on the inside when you weren't. 
and um, uh, you're going to be there watching this party from the outside. These people that you thought were in your team, they weren't. And so he, um, not only, so next is he flips it. Not only are you guys going to be out watching Abraham and the prophets and everybody, but there's going to be some other people in there that you're going to be very upset about. Look what he says, verse 29. People are going to come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. So they'll recline at the table. In the first century world, the way they would do dinner parties, right, is you wouldn't sit at a table the way we do a dinner party. In the dining room, everybody sits up straight and uses your fork and knife. It was sort of a usually a long table surrounded by cushions on the ground. It was a low table. Like if you can imagine a whole group having a dinner party eating off the uh, coffee table in somebody's living room, right? And so everybody would kind of recline. That's why he says recline at the table. And it was a very intimate communal thing because a lot of the food you would just be eating with your hands. You'd be grabbing a piece of bread and dipping it in something. And like, you know, the Seinfeld episode, you double dipped the chip. Like a lot of that was going on, right? This is very, very personal stuff. And so the, the, the end times, right, the, 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 the kingdom of God in the new heavens and new earth is often pictured as like this wonderful party and, or wedding feast, you know. Um, the messianic banquet in the end times. I'll give you two verses from the end of Luke here in Luke 22. And I assign you as my father assigned me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's one of the promises Jesus makes to his disciples. Someday you're going to be at the dinner party and it's going to be so fun. And that's picked up at the end of Revelation. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And then he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who make it to this dinner party. So who's going to be there, right? We have Abraham and the prophets and Jesus, of course, and people from all over. That's what Jesus says, from the east and the west and the north and the south. He is telling these first century um, Israelites, these people that you guys have written off and have assumed are on the outside because they're not like you, they're the ones who are going to be at the party. You guys, what's the, I feel like it was a movie or something where there's some kid at Christmas and it's snowing and he wipes off the window and he looks in and there's like a whole big dinner party happening inside like a Christmas dinner and he doesn't get to go to the party and it's real. Was that Christmas story or something? No. Anyway, you know what I mean, right? That's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, you're going to be like that kid at Christmas wiping off the window, real sad because you look inside and all your family and friends are in there and you don't get to go in, right? That's what's going to happen. This is a major theme developed throughout the New Testament is you guys think you're in, but you're not. And all these people that you can't stand and that you were awful to, these are the people that are going to be sitting there, right? We see this theme at Pentecost when people from all over become believers. And then we see Paul, the missionary. He goes out to all these Gentile areas. And then all of these Gentile, these non-Jewish believers, or people become believers, and the church has to wrestle with this. There's a whole chapter in Acts chapter 15 where they're trying to wrestle with, okay, how do we bring these people into the church? And I mean, it's like half of the book of Romans and a whole bunch of the book of Revelation. This is a major theme that the kingdom doesn't look like what these people expected, right? The first will be last and the last will be first. That's just a way to say the people that you and your society have put on the bottom, they are going to be welcomed in and you might not be, right? So that's the first section. Don't assume that you guys are just automatically in and everybody else is automatically out, Um, right? The people of God in this text and in this part of the book of Luke, they're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And if you think about it, that's a pretty massive bummer. 
They had the whole Old Testament, everything leading up to telling them who Jesus was going to be, what to watch out for. He shows up and they reject him. And so he continues with this next part, 31. At that hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Okay, so I think what's actually happening here, a lot of theologians and commentators think this, the Pharisees weren't trying to help Jesus at all. They don't care about Jesus. They, you know, throughout this whole section, there's even parts where they're trying to trap him into this stuff. I think what's happening is Jesus is doing his little preaching tour, and they want him to leave town, so they make up this thing about Herod's trying to kill you. It doesn't actually say Herod was trying to kill him. It just says the Pharisees told him that, right? So they're trying to get rid of Jesus. So he, he says, the way in is to know me. And then the Pharisees go, hey, get out of here, man. <laughs> we don't want to know you. We don't even want you here teaching our people. Beat it. And so, you know, and Herod's trying to kill you. Whether that was true or not, it doesn't really say. Verse 32. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus is very dismissive of the whole Herod thing right? Um, He's super hyper-focused. Again, Luke is showing this specifically. Jesus is like beelining for Jerusalem for the cross. There is a divine plan at work here, and so when Jesus gets to the cross, it's not losing. It's not an accident. This is what he came to do, Um, and he says, you know, I'm not going to worry about Herod, right? I've got better things to do. I'm heading for Jerusalem. I'm heading for the cross. I'm showing people what eternity will look like. I'm giving these glimpses of eternity, and and then he kind of has this little, um, this little phrase here, you know, prophets die in Jerusalem. That's what we do. Now, he's not saying that every prophet died in Jerusalem or whatever, but he's just pointing out the irony that Jerusalem was supposed to be this beacon of light. It's where the temple was. This is supposed to be a place where people all over the world could look to and see the things of Yahweh. But what happens is God sends them prophets and they kill them because they're not exactly the kind of prophets they wanted. Jesus is pointing out the irony here. And so, He has this lament then about the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Right, so he he gives a picture of his heart. He's brokenhearted by this. Um, There's a great book that just came out a little while ago that a lot of folks are reading. I don't know if you have seen it. It's a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you haven't seen this book, like I would go... Uh, asked Drew for one. Me and Drew both did this. Crossway called us and was like, hey, do you want a couple of these books? And we both said, sure, I'll take three or four. And they said, the smallest box is 50. I said, okay. So I have a box of 50. Drew has from Trinity. He has a box of 50. Anyway, this book, though, is fantastic. Um, and what it is, is about the heart of Christ. We think of, sometimes we think of God like this angry you know, principal in the sky or like the angry dad, you know, who just can't wait for you to fail sort of a thing. This gives us a glimpse, though, of the heart of Christ, and that's what this whole book is about. He's brokenhearted. His people are rejecting him. He's come, you know, to these people of Israel, and they are saying, no, we don't want anything to do with you. And he says, man, I really wish you guys would do something else here. Verse 35, because of that, behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So your house is forsaken, the house being the temple. This is like a real veiled reference probably to the destruction of the temple. You guys have put all of your hopes and dreams into this covenant system and everything. It's not going to last, Jesus says. If you're, after, the, after the cross and everything, there was no need for a temple, and the temple was destroyed by the Romans. There's a guy, um, Titus, marched 
um, some armies through after the Jewish folks rebelled against Rome. Titus marched an army in 70 AD through the city of, or through the land. And, um, you know, the Israelites did better than probably a lot of people would have expected them to do, but they still were crushed in the end. And the city of Jerusalem was basically burned and destroyed. And um, sort of the legend goes no, uh, that Titus went in to destroy the temple and um, uh, they, they let the whole thing on fire. And all the gold from the roof and the ceiling and everything sort of seeped through the cracks in the walls. And so they literally knocked the whole temple over to get all the gold out of the walls, right? Literally, like Jesus says later, not one stone will be left on another. Jesus is saying, if after you guys reject me, this is what's going to happen to your, your precious temple. All right, so moving on to the next chapter then, just these quick six verses, this little story. So we have this, this teaching about knowing Jesus and, and coming into the kingdom is how we are redeemed. And look what happens. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man who had dropsy. So <clears throat> Jesus' heart, he is still having dinner, these communal dinners with the people who are trying to get him. He is reaching out and calling for their repentance. He is loving, literally here, he is loving his enemies. And it says, though, that's not what he was getting in return. They were watching him. Now, this isn't like watching with admiration. Like when a famous person walks into a restaurant and everybody pretends not to look, but everybody's actually looking and watching this famous person. This is a different kind of watching. This is like, um, you guys know, a lot of you guys know I'm a big motorcycle guy. and um, For a lot of years, every summer, I would do a big road trip. You know, like a couple years ago, I went into Texas and up to Denver and over the Rockies. Like, I like riding my motorcycle. One time I was in the middle of nowhere, Utah, some town I've never heard of and will never hear of again. And I was hungry, so I got my phone out. And I was like, okay, I need something to eat. I just typed in lunch or something. There was nothing around but one place. It had one picture and one review, and the picture was of a grilled cheese sandwich. I was like, all right, I'm going to give this place a shot. There's literally nothing for like an hour around me. So I pull in to this place off this like dirt road on my bike. I go up this dirt road. I'm like, this is kind of sketchy. I pull in. There's like 50, not 50, but there's a lot of like big giant pickup trucks. You know, the ones with like two wheels on the back that I don't know what that's for. I'm from San Francisco. I've never had and never will have a truck, you know, but I mean, these are like real men's trucks. You know what I mean? So I pull in and I park my motorcycle and I get out and it's like one of those bungalow, not permanent buildings. I'm like, I don't know, I had a grilled cheese in the picture, you know. So I walk up, and there's a counter, and I walk in, and everything, like, all of a sudden hushes and quiets down. And I just walk up to the counter, and the girl turns around, and she's got one of those braids that goes down to, like, here, you know, and the long dress and everything, and the little bonnet thing. And I was like, hey, I'll have a grilled cheese and a Coke or whatever. And she's, I forget, it was like three bucks or something. It was, like, really cheap. And I'm like, this is really odd. She's, she was really nice to me. And then she hands me my tray with my grilled cheese, and I turn around, and everybody is looking at me, and they're all dressed exactly the same. And I sit down, and I eat my lunch, and nobody talked the whole time. And I got my motorcycle helmet, right? Like, motorcycle guys are intimidating or whatever. Anyway, I'm pretty sure, I'm like 90% sure, I accidentally had lunch on, like, one of those polygamist compounds um, <laughs> that's not normally open to the public, but to the people on the compound. And it was the most uncomfortable meal of my entire life. While I sat there just looking at people, smiling, I didn't care, you know, whatever. I knew I was out of there in a second. But literally everybody was just watching me eat, eat. The 30 people in this place were just watching me eat lunch. That's the kind of watching that was going on here with Jesus. This isn't like, oh, hey, it's Jesus. 
This is, what's this guy up to with his motorcycle helmet and his grilled cheese sandwich? Right? That's kind of what's going on here. They're trying to trap him. And the way they do that is there's this guy, and they say there's this guy here with dropsy, um, which I had no idea what this was. So I looked it up. It's this ab it says abnormal accumulation of uh, fluid in the tissues of the body. So basically your body tissue fills up with fluid and you get like super puffy. Um, I looked up some pictures of this. Super wouldn't recommend that, by the way. Um, but just like a, one guy had, you know, put his two hands out and one was just huge and like swollen. And then the other was just kind of skinny. Um, in this culture, people believed that if you had dropsy, it was because you were a glutton and you ate too much. So everybody in there was like, this guy stinks. He's a sinner and he has this condition. Um, was the guy planted? I don't know. Sometimes we, you know, they put a guy there so that Jesus would, they would try to trip Jesus. It seems like that's what's going on here. But do you see what Luke is doing here? Jesus has just gotten done teaching about the kingdom of God, who's in and who's out. And a lot of what he's been saying has to do with this assumption that, you know, the line is drawn by the Pharisees and based off of um, ethnicity and this other, you know, like the covenant stuff. And so Jesus gives some pretty serious warnings about the judgment to come for people who don't think it's coming for them. And in the very next section, what we see is that these people super don't get it, right? There's this person there who is suffering and is at the bottom of their society. This is the person that Jesus says, these are the kind of people you guys have spent all this time rejecting, and they're the ones who are going to be in there having dinner with me in eternity. And these guys don't care about him at all. What do they care about? Trapping Jesus. Right? They're watching Jesus, hoping to trip him up or something. So he hammers them on it. And he responded in verse 3 to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So this was on the Sabbath. There, it's a trap question. There's no good answer to this question if you're one of these leaders. Because if they say, yes, it's unlawful, you should not heal people on the Sabbath, then they're putting themselves in a position to tell the guy who can actually heal people when he's allowed to do it, even though they can't do it. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Everybody would go, yeah, but what do you know about it? He's the one who actually heals people. If he says it's cool, it's probably cool. But if they do the other way, if they say, oh, it's fine to heal on the Sabbath, then what they're saying, they're admitting that all these extra rules and stuff that they've made up don't actually matter. So they'd be contradicting themselves. So what do they do? They remained, verse 4, they remained silent. And he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. They're silent, right? If there's any parents in here or anybody's ever watched kids, you know exactly what's going on here, right? Did you glue your little brother's hand to his face? You know, silence. Uh, did you teach your brother how to unlatch his crib? I did that when I was a kid. Silent. My parents asked me silence. Right, whatever it is. It, this is what kids do when they know they have no answer. They just silence. And then Jesus gets up and he heals this guy. And I love how quickly Luke mentions it. Oh, and by the way, he healed this guy. It's so like matter of fact. Jesus is this powerful and it's become almost routine to watch him heal people. I mean, it's like how you guys like uh, basketball. My, I love basketball. So Steph Curry. Pulls up, takes a shot from the logo, you know, eight feet behind the three-point line, and he makes it. And now we all go, yeah, sounds about right. When he first was doing it, it was pretty amazing. But it's become so commonplace now that, you know, you don't really see highlights of that anymore. This is Jesus. He's healed so many people that Luke just mentions it so sort of matter-of-fact. So he heals it, heals a guy of the dropsy. By the way, I wonder what this looked like. Right? If, put yourself in the situation. What actually happened? How puffy was this guy? You know, did he come in here, like, dropsy? I mean, you get real, like, puffy, like the Michelin man, kind of puffy, you know? And he walks in, and 
and Jesus says, hey, come over here, dude. And he puts his hand on him and he heals. And then they all watch him deflate. Is that how it, like, you know, slowly, all of a sudden he's getting less and less puffy and everybody's looking right at him? Or was Jesus like, I'm going to heal you. Hey, look, it's George Clooney. And then everybody looked, and then when they turned back, the guy was already healed. And this has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just super curious about this stuff, and I can't wait to be dead so I can ask Jesus about it, right? Maybe there's video, heaven video, or something. We can watch the highlights, you know? This is a super cool miracle, right? Because there's no way to say, oh, he, you know, is a, he didn't really heal him, right? There's this giant puffy guy who all of a sudden looks normal and walks out of here without the dropsy. It's pretty cool. And then so Jesus turns to the the folks and says this. He said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox, that have fallen on a well in the Sabbath, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Um, These Pharisees, and there were some sections before this in Luke, when I was teaching the book of Luke, where we super got into this. But um, a lot of these Pharisees had rules about the Sabbath. You can't walk this many steps. You can't tie a knot. You can't light a fire. There was like all this extra stuff. They had this huge buffer zone around, hey, take a day off and relax and spend time with me. You know, that was like the idea behind, um, behind the Sabbath. And they added all this stuff to it. But they had these convenient loopholes so that the, you know, certain things you were allowed to do. And a lot of those loopholes uh, had to do with animals. And so in one spot, Jesus is about to heal this woman. And he was like, he goes, you have all these loopholes for animals, and you care more about your animals than this woman standing here, who, and it's the only person he calls a daughter of Abraham. And he points out the hypocrisy, is they have all these loopholes that benefit them, but if it benefits somebody else, it's against the rules. Again, they're drawing these lines in a really sort of inappropriate way. And so that's sort of our text. That's how the text ends. Let's, let's end by just really quickly looking at the structure of this passage. Look at this. The beginning. People come to Jesus and basically say, hey, we're all going to be saved, right, because we're Israelites? And Jesus says, don't count on it, you know, but we're Jewish, it's our right. And Jesus tells him, man, you guys are going to be on the outside, and the bouncer is not going to let you in, and you're going to be real sad about it. Part two, Jesus points out the irony that the capital city, the center of the religion, should be a beacon of light, but instead, um, they're like trying to put out the light. You know, like their, their version of, what are those old school things, you know, that you snuff out a candle. You see them in old movies and stuff. That's the city of Jerusalem. They're supposed to be the candle. They're acting like the thing that puts out the candle. They failed at the main thing that they were supposed to do. And then part three, instead of sort of heeding Jesus's warnings and putting their faith in him, they try to get rid of him and then trap him up on this Sabbath technicality. They clearly don't care about the things of the kingdom. They don't care about the sick and the poor and the upside-down kingdom of God. They've missed the whole point of the Old Testament law and the Old Testament covenant. The temptation, when reading a passage like this for church people, is to assume that you're the good guy and that other people are the bad guys. We do this when we read the Bible. We read the story of David and Goliath. Oh, I'm David. I'm just like David, you know. Like, we always put ourselves in the story, but like as the hero, And that can be very dangerous. That sort of attitude is exactly what Jesus was condemning here. Church people should never sort of have this attitude that we're better than anybody else. But the thing is, this attitude happens with churches and church people all the time. And if you don't believe me, read, I don't know, the New Testament, right? Because the New Testament is filled with letters to churches acting like entitled brats that think we're, you know, we're just automatically better than everybody else. 
I want to read you just one of them. There's seven letters at the beginning of Revelation in chapter two and three of the book of Revelation. I literally could have picked, I think, almost any, well, all but one of them to make this point. But let me read this to you from Revelation three. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So this is the letter to church people, not to outsiders. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come up against you. This is Jesus telling the church, I will come up against you if you don't turn this thing around, if you don't repent. You have a, and then he goes on to talk about, there's a couple of people here that are great, but you guys really need to get it together. I won't read the rest of the letter. He's telling church people, repent of this attitude. The very next letter after this is the letter to Laodicea with that famous verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Um, can you guys let me in? That's the New John version. I'm paraphrasing. Can you guys let me in? That's not a verse. We put that on pamphlets and evangelistic stuff. And we, you, hey, Jesus is inviting you in. The problem with that is that was written to church people. Jesus walks up to the church and he says, hey, guys, can you let me in? We don't want to act like these first century folks who just assume, oh, we're the good guys and we're in. And that's just how it works. I've been going to church my whole life, right? The gospel, the gospel story isn't about privilege and strength and power. It's about weakness and humility. It's the story of the creator of the universe lowering himself, as Philippians says, right? To the, Paul says in Philippians, to the point of death on the cross. At the very center of the story, he's heading to Jerusalem, he's heading to Jerusalem, he's heading, is the cross, is weakness. And putting our faith in him is, uh, and his work on the cross, that's where the line gets drawn. That's how we're in. That's it. Is, is not through power or privilege or any, it's through the weakness of the cross. And so let me just give you three big takeaways and then we're done. We're done. The first one is this. Don't make assumptions about salvation that are based on who you are or what you have done. Okay, that is dangerous territory, right? I go to church. I give to church. I grew up in church. I won some Awana scripture memorization thing in 1987 or whatever it was. You know, I'm a pastor. I'm the pastor's wife. <laughs> I signed up to be a greeter, whatever it is, right? All of that stuff, you know, a lot of that stuff can be great. It's not stuff that you can show up at the throne room of God and say, look at what I did for you. Because God, Jesus will say, I don't even know who you are. That's terrifying language. Right? Instead of, well done, good and faithful servant, you've put your faith in me, you've put your trust in me. To show up with that list of stuff is it's not going to go well. The second idea, if this is true then, what we have to do is it completely changes the way we live without, we uh, interact with people outside of the church, right? outside of the line. This, this idea of weakness at the center has us live with hope and love with outsiders, right? not being smug and contempt, filled with contempt, and, um, you know, like a lot of the way church people act with outsiders. Don't treat people the way that these guys treated Gentiles. Here's another thing, too, by the way. If you're part of a church, and hopefully I think Chris talks about this a bunch, loving neighbors, and you guys, you know, I know a lot of you guys now, and like the missional living, it's also super condescending to treat people like projects. You know, like, I'm better than you, and you're my project, and I'm going to fix you, right? None of that. We should kind of, the way we should treat people should be how Jesus treated people, with compassion and love 
and to see them as like the, you know, this daughter of Abraham, like this person made in the image of God, that's why we should love people. Because he loved us that way, and now we love other people that way. And then the third thing, the last thing, is don't ever forget what Luke is trying super hard to beat into the head of his readers here, that the cross is absolutely central. It's all about the cross. That, that's the line, is putting faith in what Jesus did at the cross. It's so easy to move the cross like kind of off to the side and to say it's sort of, it's part of what we do and it's sort of important. The thing is, no, 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 the cross is everything, right? What the work of Jesus on the cross is the absolute center of our faith. Do you guys remember that movie? Here's another TV movie quote here. I swear I read books, I promise. Um, you guys remember that movie from 2000-something? I don't know. Napoleon Dynamite? Am I the only one that's seen this movie? Okay, so it's, it might be the greatest movie of all time. I don't know. If they do an Oscar for greatest picture ever, I, Napoleon, he's at least in the running, right? There's a character in the movie. His name's Uncle Rico, who might be the greatest character in the history of movies. All right, I might be overselling this a little bit, but Uncle Rico is this middle-aged man, and I think every line almost he has in the movie is him complaining about his high school football career. Oh, if they had played me in the fourth quarter. And I mean, he's like this grown man who can't give up the fact that he played high school football, right? I could throw the ball over them mountains, you know? Um, and he lives in his van, and he's a total loser because all he thinks about is his high school football glory days. And the whole point of it is he's a one-dimensional character. All he thinks about is, if they had put me in, we would have won state, right? And he, he's such a loser. That's the kind of people we should be, but instead of obsessed with high school football, we should be Uncle Rico's, but about the cross, right? Every line, you know, everything we do should be flavored with the idea that our entire life has changed because of what Jesus did on the cross. He's, Jesus, Luke, Luke says he's heading towards the cross. He's heading towards the cross. And in that weakness and humility, that's how we are brought in. That's how we are saved. And so all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our lives— as followers of Jesus, should be centered on him and his work. Not on us, who we are, what we've done, but centered on him. And if it's anything else, then we're making a huge mistake. So let's be cross-centered, you know, gospel-focused people. Amen?